everyone, and I want to um, just say I haven't been feeling well on this retreat, so I've been resting more in the afternoons, and but I feel the sweetness when I was walking up the hill and seeing everyone sit outside. We were just saying, the teachers, why don't we have a sky deck out here all the time or build? <laughs> it's so easy to do. They build things really quickly here. And it just seems so interesting how we have this land and we don't sit on it enough, you know. <laughs> it's nice sitting in here, you know, but there is something about being outside on the earth, making direct contact, not through cement, not through wood floors, but actually, you know, feeling that. So, yeah, Aaron's going to get behind that, so it'll probably happen, you know, <laughs> and Anne. <laughs> And so, yeah, I felt a little like I've been missing out, but also seeing the beauty in the meetings has been really touching. And I have to say, it feels really, really dropped in. Something really powerful, a lot of clarity and wisdom. And that, as a teacher, always feels exciting. You know, I think for some of you might be teachers in other areas of your life, either teaching school or classes. You always want people to get what you're offering. <laughs> it's like, yes, you know. <laughs> they got an A. That's great, you know. Uh, so there's something that is inspiring about that. And uh, touching in my own way. It touches me. So tonight I was thinking about what I could offer that would be important and and hearing the group in the mornings and talking with people, I decided I really wanted to talk about uh, faith tonight. And weaving that with faith and wisdom and compassion. So it's almost like the faith in wisdom and compassion. And this faith, I think, has broader meaning because it's also the faith in ourselves. It's the faith in this way of knowing truth. It's the faith in the aliveness and the spirit of Gaia. Right? It's the faith in the ways of the feminine. It's the faith in the heart. Right? So there's all these things that I think what happens as we grow up in this culture and many cultures around the world, it's certainly not just this one, the Western cultures, is these, this intuitive way of understanding life and who we are gets kind of destroyed. Right? We get pushed and I, I think our modern, uh, sort of what's called the modern education system is a really big part of that, where certain things are valued and other qualities are undervalued, right? So we grow up and it's very competitive, right? This constant competition. Even people have talked about that a lot in retreats over the years, that they get into competitive sitting. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to sit longer than all of you, right? And they end up staying up all night, exhausted, <laughs> thinking I'll be the last one in the hall or the first one in the hall. And their whole retreat becomes about some kind of com competition with others and they think that the other people are involved in it and they have often no idea. <laughs> They're genuinely just sitting for the joy of, you know. But this, it takes on a whole meaning or I can walk more than anybody or I can eat less than anyone or eat more than anyone or do my yogi chopping better than the, my group or... But you see this kind of strange way. It's, so, it's, like, it's a lot of suffering in that, actually. Because it's, it's um, meaningless, actually. It doesn't add anything to our lives. It actually creates insecurity. It actually fuels more self-doubt. Because the, the comparing mind, no matter what, is always going to find something uh, higher. <laughs> right? And the impossible, you know, whether it's somebody on a magazine or, or something. But, and so what this does is that we lose our, our faith in, in who we really are. We don't really trust it. 
And so this self-doubt and um, this lack of kind of believing in, in magic, so I think we lose that. We sort of lose our mystic ways, don't we? Everything becomes very concrete, very linear, right? Don't act too crazy. Don't go outside of the box, right? Don't talk about your dreams or your, you know, or things that you experience outside. You know, these things that we have, these magical moments on retreats, like with a bird or the horses, right? Or the trees. Like if you go and you talk to your coworkers, they're like, what are you doing, you know? Where, where, where were you at, you know? And so what happens is over years of that, we become kind of more dead inside. Right? We dampen all of this down. We numb it down and we become like everybody else, right? Oh, this is what society wants. This is what our husbands want. This is what is uh, the norm, and um, I love that I think the norm isn't working. <laughs> you notice that world? This is what the norm get. Like this kind of following what is um, expounded as uh, the path of happiness. It's like here we are on the kind of cusp of madness here. So more than ever, I feel like our ways, our customs, our our hearts and our intuitive wisdom is needed now. It's not only needed for ourselves, but it's needed for our children, our grandchildren, our great, great, great grandchildren. So that's often how I look at life now. It's not just for me. It's, for, it's, it's beyond that. It's for the future. So this question then becomes, do we believe in ourselves and how do we do that? How do we have faith in ourselves? How do we trust ourselves? How do we rely on ourselves? This is an aspect of power. It's what it means to become empowered. It means I trust myself. Right? Even if I don't see the steps in front of me, I trust my heart. Right? And we don't spend so much time in the kind of back and forth um, suffering that we do. You know, indecision, that place. <laughs> and I, I was, there's a few people on this retreat that are these huge life decisions they have to make on Sunday afternoon, you know. <laughs> like, should I get married or should I move to Africa and start a whole project for kids? I want to do both, right? Something like that. That's not the exact but. We have these these uh, these decisions and these these things, but what happens is that when we don't trust ourselves, we fall into indecision, not just for the duration of a retreat, but for years. We're waiting for permission. We wait for approval. We wait for other people to get it. And that's a long time. Right? <laughs> if we're gonna wait for some kind of authority figure to go, you are all great, you know, sitting on the earth and feeling your body. And I mean, what a beautiful thing to do with your life. I mean, come on. It's going to be a long way to go. Long way to go. You know. So therefore, we give ourselves the authority. <laughs> we ordain ourselves. We sanction ourselves. We anoint ourselves. We we give ourselves the medals and the 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 flowers and say, "Go forth," right? And I think this is a really important thing that we have to start um, offering ourselves and each other and the other women in our lives. It's not just us. This is a growing movement. And, you know, I often reflect on the historical place of the women and, and you know, and the women and the lives of women in, in religion, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Catholicism. We have this interesting role of trying to, you know, we often get written out. Our roles become very much like background, even though they become, they're actually very instrumental and, and the whole thing, but, you know, due to the 
the devaluing of what the feminine brings. We don't have our stories so alive that we can count on. They're, they're there and they're, they're coming out more and more, even as the teachings of Prajnaparamita regain their, their sort of glory. It's like these hidden jewels are being discovered everywhere. And so we don't have these stories that we are so readily available in our culture that we can just call on the, the heroines. A few of them we have. But they're definitely not as pervasive in uh, spiritual lives as we would want them to be. But I want to tell the story of one, one woman that had the most, what I would say, one of the most significant roles in the life of the Buddha. And this particular woman has sort of the spirit of this woman named Sujata has been with me for a long time. I used to have many dreams and visions about her. Um, I'd like to, in the future, start a community based on her, that that name, Sujata. When I traveled a few years ago, when I went to Asia and I did a very kind of classical pilgrimage all around to the holy sites, I knew for sure I had to go see Sujata's village. Sujata's place, and it was outside of Bodh Gaya, a few hours out. And um, because I feel that this woman, this also described in so many different ways, some describe her as a child, some describe her as a goddess. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh described her more of a goddess type, and some of the early Theravada sutras, they described her as being very young. But I also know that they describe women as being young to kind of take some of their power away a little bit. <laughs> what if this was an amazing goddess who came, you know? So it's the kind of, again, I, that's my opinion, um, you know, diffuse some of the power, that the role that they played in, in, the, in the great story, right? In the bigger story. And so Sujata... Um, when the Buddha had left his life as a prince and he decided to become a renunciate, he left his palace and he sort of took off from there and he spent all these years in the forest, he was doing very, very harsh, aesthetic, kind of almost like kind of violent practices to his body. And what they believed was if they could conquer the body in some way, they could, they could go outside of the body. It was like trying to get rid of the body, right? So they could attain enlightenment. And you see a lot of these sects in still parts of India, even the Jains, which is a sort of a thriving, you know, uh, tradition. If you're, um, you know, you follow that path of extreme renunciation, no clothes, no food, really. Uh, very, very... Uh, yeah, they have a very strong belief that that is their, their way to awaken. So the Buddha engaged in all these practices for many years. And they say that he was nearing death. And I was once studying this book, a classical book from the Tibetan tradition, and they said that there was all these gods and celestial beings looking down, watching, and they were going, oh no, he's killing himself. <laughs> right? It was like, oh, what are we going to do? He's dying. You know, like, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so he was so thin, he would only eat one grain of rice a day for many days, thinking if I could just conquer this. And there's a statue that we don't display prominently. <laughs> Have you seen that one way out? It's actually by the, the teacher's uh, housing and the staff housing. It's like set way on a hill. It's huge, actually. And it's basically the Buddha starving. You could see all the ribs and like kind of weird and it's a little frightening. So I think somebody gave it to Jack, I think was the, and he was like, um, okay, we're going to put this over behind. <laughs> it's nothing like the beautiful Buddha by the kitchen, right? All full of life and, you know, that's a later. But that was 
his path and they say that he didn't bathe and he wouldn't eat and his hair was long and matted and and all the comforts were were looked upon as being weak you know it was like strive again do you see this in our culture it's like yes you strive you get that you 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 work and work it doesn't matter what your body is going through right it's like rest days off no right this kind of machine is very mechanistic right where we ignore the body so they said one day the buddha stood up to go to the bathroom and fell flat in the mud he's like oh i don't even have enough energy to practice right i don't what am i doing and then there was also this sort of the other part where he heard a a, a musician teaching his student going by on a little boat and he was saying you know the strings are too tight it won't play the strings are too loose but it was in that moment though here's what i think is is really the most important part of that story was that sujata they say earlier that morning in her village was very devout and she decided to spend all morning making this most amazing bowl of rice porridge They said that she went to the the best cows and milked the best cows, and then she churned the butter for a long time to make the butter, and then she brewed it and she was singing over it, and she had this like, oh, I'm going to take this beautiful bowl and I'm going to offer it uh, at the the nearby altar, like yes, my my devotion, right? This act of devotion. So here she comes with this delicious bowl of food walking through the forest and sees this, what probably to her was this mangled up being on the, you know. However, what through her wisdom, she saw obviously more than that, right? She could see probably something very profound there, that he was on the verge of something, but he was destroying himself. And this food and this woman means the entering into the feminine right there. Right? It wasn't a monk who came along. <laughs> right? It wasn't a teacher who's like, what are you doing? Right? It was a beautiful woman coming with this food, with food, and saying, here, you know, eat. <laughs> right? What are you doing anyway? This isn't the way, you know, and there's so much of our... I think what we bring is that. It's like, here, eat. <laughs> right? Isn't that the mother? Like, the earth provides, like, fruit falling from the trees. Like, eat. Be happy here. It's all here. Right? It's all, it can be enough. It can be sustainable. So she brings the food, and um, he recognizes that his whole practice had been wrong. Like, I had the wrong view. Like, this was, you know, there's an extreme. I'm being extreme. It's the luxury of the palace is one extreme. But sitting here trying to kill myself with this striving, this unbelievable striving, trying to break my body. Also, trying to leave the body behind is also very masculine, right? It's like, you know, somehow this is leaving the elements behind, too. Right? It's like, I don't want this. It's like, it's about getting out of here. Right? You get out. You conquer. You get out. You kind of conquer the elements in some way. Instead of opening to them, working with them, honoring them even, utilizing the magic that they have. So, Sujata was... I think pivotal and there will never I don't think I'll ever know even though I pray sometimes like may I know the real story <laughs> right what happened Thich Nhat Hanh in his book Old Path White Clouds one of my favorite autobiographies of the Buddha's life talks about them having uh, a longer relationship right and then I read another book in a, in a, a Vajrayana book that says they were became tantric lovers for a period she nursed him back to health on many levels physically emotionally actually giving him the strength right but then we'll never know because other books say she came and went without bowl and said goodbye and that was it 
right? <laughs> but we do know that that was a changing moment. And that bowl of rice gave him the nourishment and he gained a new perspective on how to practice in this more open way. What happens if I let go of all the striving? What happens if I embrace this more being? What happens if I open to actually having a body? What happens if I just sit here and open to life just how it is? And then from there, he went through the stages of awakening shortly after that. And these time frames, one never knows that day, two days later. But that led to that. So that's an important moment. Another important moment, I think, for me about the entering into the feminine is that when the Buddha was in the moments of enlightenment, when he was being sort of bombarded by the demon Mara, and Mara is described as this fierce demon. He's like the chief demon of all demons, the architect of all the demons, like the biggest one came and was trying to basically knock him off his seat with greed and hatred and lust, like one, one attack after another, hatred and all these different things. And finally, he had, they say that he withstood all of them. But you know what the last test was? Doubt. Self-doubt. What right do you have? Which this is ours too, isn't it? What right do we have to take up space, to sing, to dance, to and drive a car, have, you know, raise our children, plant food, right? What right? It's like, this was a big one. Also that night, who did the Buddha call on for strength? The earth. Right? He said he touched the earth and so many of the statues, the hand is down like this and the earth touching. It's the, they often call it the lion's roar too. He roared for the earth. Bear witness. You know what I've been through. Panchamama, you've seen it. <laughs> right? I have sat here naked for six years. <laughs> you have witnessed this. <laughs> You are my witness to my right to become free. So that also feels very symbolic. Right? These, these aspects of the earth and the feminine coming in. So I say these things to remind us of our own power. That these stories and these, these things are, this is a living lineage and faith is a very important part of our spiritual life. Faith actually, uh, the word in Pali, which is um, the, the words that um, many of the teachings were written down on in, also in Sanskrit as well, but sada is translated as confidence or conviction. Right? That we feel confident in ourselves. Right? We feel confident in our wisdom, confident in our path. Faith is a key factor. It's a factor of the heart, and it's listed in all of the wholesome states, in all of the Dharma. It's listed all. It's one of the uplifting enlightenment factors. Like you have to have faith, right? There's something that faith is the doorway to things. It's related to states of joy and energy. When one has faith, one immediately moves into action, right? And the faith can be in a cause that we believe in, right? The rightness of our own truth, the ability to speak out, right? We have faith in uh, our, ourselves, our gifts in the world. Faith is one of the five spiritual powers that we cultivate. And again, there's a lot of lists. So there's this one list called the five spiritual powers. I'll tell you the other four that are on there. Vigor, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So faith is sort of the, the, the main one. Faith is also a key factor in what they call stream entry. Stream entry is a stage in this insight path in, within this tradition that we follow, there's a map and 
A stream entry, they say, is when the mind enters into this, a state of clear seeing. They call it, it enters the stream of awakening. Right? So say they uh, talk about some people have attained stream enter. Right? And it's basically what that, another way to phrase that is a huge piece of greed, hatred, and delusion has fallen out of the mind. It's been purified. Right? So the stream of consciousness becomes clear. Right? It's no longer filled with confusion. Right? We could look at our stream of consciousness now and go, yeah, it's filled with a lot of stuff. Not always clarity, right? <laughs> Imagine if that was just clear, right? Clear knowing, wisdom, compassion, maybe 90% of the time. That'd be great, right? I, that's my uh, maybe thoughts about what that would be like, but I, I don't really know. So uh, the Dharma is it's not a religion of blind faith at all. This is a come and see for yourself. This is what I liked about it, actually. It was in a dogmatic uh, teaching. It was like, sit and see if it's true for you. See what you notice. Look at your own mind. You, at the end of the day, be a light onto yourself. You know, a lot of times when I teach in Oakland at our center, East Bay Meditation Center, I'm always telling people, I say this so much now, you already know it all. All I'm helping you to do is remember that you know. Like, you know, when you, I see everyone sitting out there, the bell was ringing and people are standing, or the music, you know, I think Jennifer's music helps us remember, right? It's like, oh my gosh, old memories come. You don't even know where they're coming out of. Right, but they just come through the heart and it's like, oh, I'm remembering something here. It's beyond language. I can't describe it, but it's like a knowing and it often evokes a lot of tears. You know, we feel emotional because the, it's like the remembering's happening. I'm like getting close to something. But it's not a familiar place. Sometimes that's what retreats are so helpful for. They help us to remember, let go, be here. So this teaching the Dharma, this, this being in the Dharma and exploring the Dharma, it's, it's a tradition of experience and exploration. It's not to rely on what anyone else says. It's to rely on what you directly experience. Teachers are helpful, but at the end of the day, it's you that's your own healer. It's you that will set yourself free. It's you that will walk this path. And there's something that when we start to grow up, we, we sort of own that more and more. Like we, start, we stop looking for the... <laughs> we, start lo we stop looking for the applause <laughs> and the safety boats on the horizon. We just get in our boat and we just go, right? <laughs> like, and it has holes in it. And it's leaky. And it's wobbly. And that's just how it is in samsara. That's the boats that are here. But they will work. <laughs> we stop even looking to fix the holes in them. Because we know you'll fix one and another one pops out, right? It's the cracked glass. It's always some imperfection here. You know, it's like, oh, look at the sunset. It's so beautiful. We, can, we can't hold on to that moment, right? Then it starts getting cold. <laughs> then a mouse jumps by, right? And it's like, wow, it was so beautiful five minutes ago. Wow, it's kind of changed now, right? I'll go, I mean, it's like those, right? It's always changing. You can't just have the eternal sunset moment. Right? There's this constant shifting. So the Buddha says that his teachings was ehipasiko. Ehipasiko. I love that word. Ehipasiko. Reminds me of some of the Shipibo words that I learned a little bit in the jungle. Ehipasiko. Come and see. That's what that means. Come and see for yourself. So this helps us to create and rely on ourselves in a way. 
right? We develop our own faith. And faith matures over time. At first, it's that kind of like we have a bright faith, right? You meet a teacher, you get excited, like, wow, we get ignited. But that faith, you only can tread on that for so long. Then you have to deepen it by sort of more of a verified faith. You have to go deeper with it, right? And, and see more. So they say that it's a powerful force which can start a practitioner on their journey. And it's a really important quality to have because it nourishes the path. It keeps our path from getting dried out. When I was um, in India, I was with a friend of mine and we, I've always had a lot of different types of teachers. I have had studied with Theravada teachers for many years and then I got very interested in Vajrayana teachers and have two Tibetan teachers. One I love very, very much, Minja Rinpoche. And I've always, the thing about the Tibetans is their faith. My gosh. You know, this unbelievable faith in the goodness of things and the compassion. And they will withstand so much with this belief. And I think that that's what helps them get through the dark times. If we lose that, we lose some magic. It's like we start losing our ability to dream, our ability to see. So when I was in Bodh Gaya, I remember I was uh, at the Bodhi tree and that the, the park there, the, where there's a piece of the tree that was, they say, was uh, taken from the original tree and replanted. And there would be these 90-year-old Tibetan women prostrating for hours. <laughs> and I would see them, and they would be so smiley, you know. And I would, sometimes I would go get them chai tea. They'd be so touched by that, that some other woman would care enough to come up and offer them tea and be like, wow. You're, you're out here every day and just practicing, praying. And, and you know, I, I don't know what their inner experience was like, but I was touched by that devotion. And I, I'm touched by all acts of devotion, actually. So faith is a, an important part. In the Kula Hathapadama Sutta, the Buddha describes the path of enlightenment as starting with faith. A whole path with faith. We practice not only faith, but also virtue, wisdom, and meditation. But it begins with that. Also, um, I was thinking about my own life and uh, all the different things that I wanted to work on. And, and you know, feeling like there's so much coming to it's like as this energy is rising, you always need a counterforce, don't you? You can't develop faith when it's easy. <laughs> right? You need a pushback on something. You don't know how strong you are till you have a duel, right? Isn't that how it is? You need a battle of some kind. You need to hone it, right? And I think that's what comes where our challenges become more interesting. Right, it's sort of, and I always like to put myself in very challenging situations to kind of I some attraction to that to see how I'll respond. And of course, I'm I'm not being dangerous, and I guess there's always danger. Um, but I think that living in our times right now, we have really two ways to deal with the current um, environment. One is to rise up. Have faith to keep going with our visions, our beliefs, what we want to see in the world. And I think the pushing back is what is so challenging, right? It's like, are we going to get sort of clobbered in that? Or do we have enough faith to know that this is temporary, like all things? It comes, it, it stays for a while, and it passes. But to not lose faith, and this is why I gave this talk, mostly it's for myself. You know Dharma teachers do that. They talk to themselves, right? <laughs> it's kind of a fast way to grow because whatever you're interested in, you think, oh, right, I need to have this, this dialogue. And then you study that topic for a while and then, and then you give it and then you listen to it, you know? <laughs> and then 
you know so we're we're all just talking to ourselves so these are so this is something I need right now to grow more right i need I need a a dose of this and to remember the long enduring path. I was teaching a class last year at East Bay over in Oakland, and I was teaching a Monday night class. I was calling it the thirty day mental cleanse. It was in January. And then I looked at the group of people. There was a lot of people there. It's maybe 100 or so. And I said, actually, you guys, this is the 30-year mental cleanse class. But I knew if I said that, no one would come. Could you imagine if I said 30-year practice, we're going to start? But this is why faith is important. Because it's not for the short term. It's for the long haul. It's not a feel-good, like, oh, in the moment, you know. It's for the enduring mind. And that reminds me a lot of Harriet Tubman, which my friend Alice Walker, uh, who's a writer and she wrote The Color Purple, she's a dear mentor and friend of mine. She wrote this poem, but I could not find it, so it makes me think. I couldn't find it today. I was looking for it. She wrote this poem about Harriet Tubman because she's, she, she's like, Harriet Tubman's going to lead us through right now, you know. Like, we're going to find a new underground railroad for all beings, you know, and it's going to, you know. So she, so she must have wrote it on her website. I don't know. I read it and I just fell in love with it. But there's this one part in it where, uh, you know, she studied the life of Harriet Tubman a lot. And where Harriet Tubman was leading a group of slaves out and they were somewhere in South Carolina and then um, maybe like a hundred of them or so, and she, she said to them, she said, okay, everybody, I need you all to be really strong because right now we need to walk to Canada. So let's go. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> they're in the middle of the night. <laughs> and that, that conviction, <laughs> like we're going to walk to Canada, and she had walked to Canada from South Carolina many times through this passage way of house to place, avoiding people trying to kill her and catch her and catch, and I just thought wow this woman is so courageous and so she had faith she said did you worry about getting caught no I didn't I knew I would be fine I knew it I knew I could get every group out every person out and so I just bowed to that <laughs> it's like if I could have a little bit of that you know and we all do because it's inside of us. It's part of our true nature. It's in me. It's just also fear obscures it. You know, all of the qualities, another aspect that I love about the Dharma, and I mentioned this on the first night, but I want to reiterate it, that all of the qualities are already there. What you are experiencing here, some of you, where you feel this heart opening and you feel like touched, it's already in you. This is just clearing it, right? That our true nature is this. This is what I love about the Dharma. It's you're already enlightened, you just forgot, right? And the waking up, is very symbolic on many levels. This waking up to our own power, this waking up to our own potential, this waking up to the truth of the path, this waking up to reality, <laughs> right? And reality is always kinder than our stories. I'm convinced of that, right? It's always gentle. Mostly reality is like we're just being. The stories we tell are the real suffering, right? So this, this quality um, takes on different meaning. So I want to read you something else. This is um, from the Avantamasaka Sutra. And this, again, is a, a Vajrayana, a Tibetan sutra. And it was, this is supposed to be uh, from the great Bodhisattva, Samantabhadra where he proclaims, faith is the basis of the path and the mother of all virtues, nourishing and growing all good ways, cutting away the net of doubt, 
freeing from the torrent of passion, revealing the unsurpassed road of ultimate peace. With faith, when faith is undefiled, the mind is pure, obliterating pride. It is the root of reverence and the foremost wealth in the treasury of religion. Faith is generous. Faith can joyfully enter the Buddha's teachings. Faith can increase knowledge and virtue. Faith can ensure arrival at enlightenment. Faith can go beyond the pathways of demons and reveal the unsurpassed road of liberation. Faith is the unspoiled seed of virtue. Faith can grow the seed of enlightenment. Faith can increase supreme knowledge. Faith can reveal all Buddhas. Faith is most powerful very difficult to have. It's like in all worlds having the wondrous wish-fulfilling pearl. So that says a lot about this quality. And I'd like to read this and contemplate that because as we grow in our spiritual as we grow into who we are, we need this quality. We have to believe in ourselves and we have to believe in our other sisters on this planet and help to uplift them. We are givers of faith. Sometimes I think of myself as a faith dispenser. <laughs> like, you can do it. We can do this. We can open to it. I mean, that's basically what the teachers do here, right? <laughs> we say some version of, you could be with this. <laughs> It's elaborate, but we're all sort of saying very similarly. You can open to it and be with this with compassion. That's basically what we're trying to uh, instill in, in, in different ways to approach different people. Um, I just want to see if I have a clock up here. Um, so... On that note, I want to just um, tell you one more little story about something that has uh, something I knew intuitively. Because one of the things I want to really hone in here is as an aspect of the feminine. And the feminine is also had a fixation on Tara. Like, where did Tara come from? How did Tara emerge in our consciousness? Right? And Kuan Yin. And we have these statues all here, right? We have some of Kuan Yin, which is also Tara in, the, in China. Tara, green Tara. Both of these are the embodiment of compassion. So in the Christian tradition, you have Mary, right? Mother Mary. And um, in every culture, there's a very high deity of enlightened, compassionate mother, right? We have this. Um, and Tara is interesting, her story, how she kind of came onto the scene in the 8th century, started to appear in our, our myths, our mythology, these energies of here, the heroines, you know, of the saviors. Like, it's interesting how they begin to weave into the tapestry of our consciousness, and then we can call on them. These are living energies, Prajnaparamita, Mary, the... I remember another Dharma teacher, Kamala Masters. Some of you might know her. I was on retreat maybe 15 years ago on a three-month retreat, and she said, told me the most beautiful story. It was actually in a Dharma talk, so I'm sure it's recorded somewhere. Now, she has been a Dharma practitioner for 30 years. She's Filipino. She grew up in the Philippines in a very poor... She grew up in the Philippines and then some in California, um, and she was very young living in the Philippines at that time. And um, some people in her neighborhood, they said, oh my gosh, there's a vision of appeared of Mary, of the Sri. <laughs> and her mother was very devout and very loving, beautiful woman. She was uh, d deeply Catholic and deeply devoted to Mary. I mean, this was her deity, this infinite compassion and love and generosity. And um, Kam Kamala was like, what? A deity in the sky? So she didn't really believe it. But sure enough, she and 
maybe a thousand other people started to make their way on this hill. And so she looks up into the sky, and sure enough, she sees this, I don't know, a thousand feet high, a woman who was smiling at everybody. And they could see her hands, and she was moving her hands like this. And she said the sheer shock of it sent her right onto her knees. She just couldn't believe it. And then, of course, all these women just came and started weeping. Just the sight of that. And um, she said it, it, it lasted for another 10 minutes and then slowly started to disappear. But that stayed with her. And so when she started studying Dharma, she started reading about devas and celestial beings. And, and that gave her this huge sense, like a devotion to compassion, because what she felt from the image was the look of just complete love and compassion. It was just an expression of that. And um, she said it instilled a very deep faith in her. A faith beyond, it was like something, again, seeing it with her, her own eyes, whether people believed her or not, it didn't matter. She knew what she experienced there, that in her family, her mother particularly. Um, so our, our lives are filled with magic. And even though we don't teach that much of it here, our lives are very mythological. They're archetypal. We are in a story like no other, right? And if we could look at the wider view of our lives, we see the role that this chapter plays. This is one piece of a vast, vast map. A book that goes on and on. This is one piece. And so here we are honing certain skills here. And this kind of magic is something um, I just want to mention before I close about this intuitive knowing of the feminine. Some of you have talked about talking to trees in one of our groups. Has anyone had any good hugs of the trees out here? If you feel, I lived not far from here up the hill for a period of time and I had these huge redwood trees in my yard and I would just go out and hug these big redwood trees. I felt like they were helping me grow in a way, giving me the roots that I needed uh, to finish some projects. They gave me some magic. And um, I wanted to just mention this because um, I was fascinated by this. And I already knew this intuitively, but it's good that it's coming out more in the mainstream. Have any of you heard of the term World Wide Web? <laughs> well, there's a really an amazing... Uh, work happening by Forrester Peter Walhan, and who wrote this new book in *The Hidden Life of Trees*, and the Meyer, the Mycorrhizal Network makes up the Wood Wide Web. Basically, it's how the entire forest talks to each other, and they have made all these discoveries. No trees an island, and no place is this truer in the forest. So they. Um, they talked about this network and they talked about these two uh, trees in particular that were best friends and that had stayed together. And you see trees often start going together like this. They grow in. <laughs> and um, they talked about all these connections with the fungi and they bond the trees for years. And they can send, uh, they can send medicine to sick trees, they've discovered. Right, So a whole group of trees are healthy. One's dying. They start sending it through this network of energy. They'll start sending it. And even the whole forest is involved with that. And um, the fungi and the roots of the tree are able to commune with everything in the forest. So the underground roots of those trees, it's like everything is talking to each other. And so if you talk to indigenous people, they know this already. <laughs> Or you talk to other people who live outside or who have lived a lot on the earth. They feel the interconnectedness of all of life. It's a living system. This is not just dead matter or jumping up and down. This is like every step is alive. It's aliveness under our feet. We're just not aware of that, right? And so this has been really, really amazing. And so one of the quotes that I thought was really fun was that he said, 
he made this statement to the in a big thing in the BBC. He said, um, forest trees and their root fungi are more or less a commune in which they share resources in a fashion so unabashedly socialist that I hesitate to describe it in detail, lest conservatives reading this go out and immediately set light to the nearest forest or like it was the very opposite of ever how our systems are built. That nature itself is incredibly giving and working in a system. So us spending time with Gaia and us being elements ourselves, we are going back to something that is intuitively life-giving, sustainable. When we get out of sync with that is when we get sick. When we go against that, when we forget our true nature, when we doubt that quality of our being, that intuitive knowing, we suffer. And so it's time that we, as women, as the feminine, our time is now. It's rising, this wisdom. It's needed, that's why. It's needed now more than ever. And I think it's not just the feminine. It isn't just about being a woman. There's men who carry the feminine, who long for the feminine. Right? This is a way of being. This has nothing to do about actually your body. It's a, it's a perspective. It's a, it's a mindset. And it has deeply, deep, deep connections also to the heart. Because deep down, the forest wants everything in it to be healthy, happy, and strong. And that is the heart of what the Bodhisattva path is. We want all beings to be happy, healthy, and strong. Right? At the end of the day, that preserves our own happiness. So there's wisdom here. And there's wisdom in our ways. And there's wisdom in um, our insight and for us to keep trusting that, to keep growing that, to keep harnessing that um, so that we can express that in the world. Um, it's kind of why I do these retreats, to help some way lift that up inspire that and to lift it and inspire it in myself so thank you all for listening and uh, may we all grow in our faith bright brilliant faith that illuminates all chains of oppression and delusion So thank you, everybody. So we'll do some walking and uh, come back for our final sit.